beautiful time of worship to God. Just good, good to hear everyone singing together and um, loving the Lord. Love this church. Love you. Love what God is doing in your life. Love to hear you sing. I love to hear about your service to people. I got to run around into the children's ministry and youth ministry this morning just to surprise everyone and, of course, barge in and interrupt all their plans. But it was just so neat to see the teachers sitting down with the kids or surrounded by the children, teaching the children, loving the children, loving the youth. So good, good people, good service that we see in your heart, in your life, and what you're doing. You know the old, uh, the old adage that said there's no perfect church, and if there were and you joined it, you'd ruin it? You heard that one, right? Um, there are always things we want to improve about our church, about ourselves, about how we minister here. Um, we should expect on the biblical essentials that a church upholds the right things. But there will be many lesser issues where churches need to grow and change, and those should not become big issues to you. Those should be smaller things to you. On lesser things in life, we have to extend grace to others, yes? Patience towards others. I don't like this about that person. I don't like this about this leader, or I don't like the way this ministry is done. Well, neither do I. There's a lot I don't like about myself. I'm glad that the Lord Jesus is still chiseling away on my life. The less of Tom and the more of Christ, the better for all of us. Some of you have commented that there's sort of a fresh atmosphere here at, at Hope, at Hope Bible Church this year in particular. Um, seems like there's a new phase that the Lord is bringing our church into. I don't know that. I don't get any revelations from God. Uh, we're in a new building. We're at a new location. Um, there's a new makeup of the elder board. There are many new faces that are here. Um, there are newer um, well, we might be hiring a pastor soon. We have a congregational meeting about that this week. Um, just renewed energy. God is moving. God is taking his church. This is his church and moving it forward. He has a place for what you're going to need to do as you listen to the word of God. Be asking, what is God going to do in your life? Why does he have you here? What gifts do you have? That's important also. Newer phases don't mean that we've changed in any way our essentials, our commitment to the core principles of this church. It's always been to preach the Word of God fully, without apology, so that God may speak to His people through the Word of God, which is living and active, right? To teach sound doctrine, to develop in you discernment, to know good from evil, what is true from what is false. That is what makes a mature people of God. It is to worship God wholeheartedly, not have insincerity in our worship, to keep improving in our presentation and building our worship services as well, to witness boldly for Christ in the midst of an increasingly hostile environment, to build up you, the saints, to use your spiritual gifts in love to build up the body. We return to the book of Acts this morning, and as we do, we're going to be learning about the early church community, the flavor of their community, what that church was like, and from that we're going to glean some lessons for our own local church. We're going to consider what kind of a community they were. We don't get told everything about them, but we do get told some things, and we'll be able to learn from that. 
and then ask God, would you continue, Lord, to mold us as a congregation into that image? The text is Acts chapter 4. We're in verses 32 through 35 this morning. And take a Bible and follow along, and may God speak to all of us uh, this morning. Acts 4, 32 to 35. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. We're really blessed, I think, in this little snapshot to gain a picture of what the church looked like then. I like these kinds of internal pictures of what was happening in the church. It helps me to know, well, what were they really like? You know, if you were there in the midst of them, what was it like to be part of that church? Um, This is just a year or two, we don't really know, beyond the day of Pentecost. It's still very early in church history. Um, From chapter 2, when the church was born, we learned the, the very first church started in which city? Jerusalem, right? The church did not begin in Rome. So many people think it started in Rome. No, it did not. It took a while for it to get to Rome. The church, the the first mother church was Jerusalem. It was the mother of all churches. Every single local church on this planet today and in the previous centuries all came from this one local church. The the mission of Christ was launched from one local church. Think about that. Uh, The most influential local church that there ever has been is this church right here. So there's a lot to learn from it. And, and they were, we noticed in chapter 2, if I could just kind of bring, you know, bring us back into uh, a little bit of the history here. Some of you might have missed some of those earlier messages. In Acts chapter 2, we learned that this was a community that was centered on the teaching of the apostles. We call that a word-centered congregation. And, but they didn't just listen to the word, they lived it out. It says they were dedicated not only to the apostles' doctrine, but also to the people, to the fellowship and then the times of uh, breaking the bread together and the times of the prayers in the temple. And so that's what they were. They shared life with one another. They shared, it says there, from house to house, they shared their meals together. They witnessed, they worshiped. The apostles were performing miracles. They were dedicated to prayer, dedicated to each other. They'd meet in the temple together. And this was going on day by day, and yes, on the Lord's Day on Sunday as well. And the apostles were performing genuine miracles. They were undeniable miracles. No one outside of the church was denying that there was something supernatural going on, which shows you just because people see supernatural events doesn't mean they'll repent and become Christians. A lot of people say, well, if I see a miracle, I become a Christian. That's not necessarily true because the real problem of people coming to Christ is not their intellect, it's their will. They want to practice their sin. They love their sin. But there was a resurrection of Jesus. He was a man and he was raised from the dead and there was so much evidence for it. There were thousands that were believing, but many resisted. Then there was one of those days in the midst of all of this that Peter and John were heading up to the temple to the time of the prayers where the Christians, they weren't even called that then, were meeting in the, in the portico of Solomon. They would gather together there and they would exhort one another in the truth. On the way up to the temple, they met a lame man and they healed this man in the name of Jesus Christ. And that launched a change 
in what would happen in this local church. It's included because it was so momentous in what it meant for the future of the church. They healed them. A crowd gathered. They're amazed. They preached again. More got saved. But then the authorities had had enough of this. And they dragged Peter and John before them after they spent the night in jail. And um, they listened to them and they told them, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And of course, their hearts were hardened. And Peter and John had to say, no, we have to obey God rather than men. And then they left and we know that they went right back to their own, right back to their community, right back to the leaders and they gathered them and they prayed and they prayed earnestly and they prayed really scripturally. They really were aware of what the prophecies had said about the Messiah and the Messiah's kingdom and what was going to be happening. And they brought Psalm 2 and they prayed that back to the Lord and they were of one mind and heart in that prayer and they lifted up one voice to the Lord. And then God, because he knew this was a crucial time in the history of the church, he gave an extra special answer to prayer. Do you remember what it was? He shook the ground where they were praying. He told them, I'm here with you. He didn't say anything new to them. He'd already given them the Great Commission. He just reminded, I'm there with you. Don't worry about it. My power will attend you. And he even filled them with the Holy Spirit. They'd been filled before. They were filled again. So they'd go out and they would speak boldly. All of that's exciting. Those are things that God was doing. And all of that leads up to where we are where we come to at this place here. Here, Luke decides to provide another update on the condition of the church, the internal pulse of the congregation, we might call this section. It's really similar to that section back in Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. Now, Luke has already provided numeric updates for us as we're reading through the book of Acts. We know that now there are over 5,000 that are in this church church at this point in time. It was a mega church there in Jerusalem. But this snippet looks at the spiritual condition of the church. Here we get a sense of their attitudes and their commitment and the fellowship of the congregation. This paragraph here in this, in this text, this holy text, shows that the Holy Spirit was working still. He was forming and already formed and was, was working it out, a community that had genuine love and care for one another and who were dedicated to the mission of the church. You see love, and you see the mission of the church being carried out, and you see them relying on the grace of God, and you see them doing that collectively. You see that unity that's there. I don't know if you've noticed, if you've been doing any reading in ecclesiology, the study of the church recently, there have been a lot of books that have been put out over the last two decades about the church, and along with them will come statements or or lists about what are the marks of a healthy local church. You know, um, there, there are a lot of these. A lot of people have published different, different marks and signs when you're looking for a local church and when you're thinking about your own church, how to improve it. What are the signs or the marks of a healthy local church? Many of these I quote in my ecclesiology class, and I agree with them. They're things like expository preaching, biblical counseling, vibrant evangelism, a commitment to missions, um, a high view of God that results in, in God-focused worship. Um, music with quality lyrics, love and kindness of speech among the people, a widespread use of spiritual gifts, integrity with money, elder rule, practice of church discipline, discerning members in the pew, true understanding of what biblical conversion is, Christian discipleship and growth going on, joy permeating the gathering, strong relationships. All of those are wonderful attributes, and you could give more. These are things that the New Testament emphasizes a church should be like. Well, here the Holy Spirit has provided by no means an exhaustive list, but a good model of one 
local churches' pulse and their attributes that we can kind of take and we can bring to ourselves and say, how can we learn from this and how can we emulate this? So I want you to consider with me this morning four characteristics of a vibrant, spirit-filled church. That's our outline, four characteristics of a vibrant, spirit-filled church church. And I'm going to give them to you as we, we go through. The first one there is in verse 32, if you'd look back at it, and that is that they were unified. They were united. Do you see that? It says, and the congregation of those who believed were of what? One heart and soul, right? One heart and soul. Do you see that? We'll stop right there. That phrase, the congregation of those who had believed, actually in Greek literally is the multitude who had believed. It's actually used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 6 for a group that gathered in the streets of Jerusalem, and there it's translated crowd. It means just that. There were lots and lots of believers in this congregation at this time. There were many, many who had believed, and they were all Jewish These were all Jewish believers. This was a Messianic congregation in that sense. They believed in the Messiah. Every last one of them. Many, many Jews came to faith in Jesus before any Greeks and Romans did. And that's just a fact of history. So many Jews believed, it appears that Luke isn't going to even try anymore from this point onward to quantify how many there were. He just says multitude, and you'll see this again and again. The large number of Jewish conversions to Jesus is one of the evidences for the truthfulness of Christianity. Yes, it's true that the leadership that was jealous of Jesus and his movement, they rejected Christ. And yes, it's true that ultimately the vast majority of Jews followed them. But here in the early stage, right in the capital, the Jewish capital, thousands of Jews were reasoning in their mind about this this claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. They consulted the evidence. They saw what was in this community. They saw the change in this community, and they concluded this is true, and they converted to be followers of Jesus. These apostles had actually seen Jesus raised from the dead, and so no one was going to shut their mouths as they continued to preach. They were full of the Spirit. They were full of confidence that their message was correct, and they preached that way, and it resulted in many, many, many converts. Now, please note that though they were large, this congregation didn't divide into 25 factions or something like that. They remained with one heart and soul. Some people say large churches can't remain unified. That's not true. Here's one that did. This church continued to thrive. In fact, it it appears that the size of the church only seemed to add to the enthusiasm of the congregation. It was like a very, very large family. And they prayed with one voice back in verse 24. And they were able to pray with one voice because they already had one heart and soul. They were unified. Soul is a common word, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Greek, it's psuche. It's a term that indicates the inner person. You know, their, their souls, their true selves were, were knit together. They really had a true unity. If they're unified in soul, then you know it's a true unity. The other word, their heart, cardia, refers to the center of their thinking and also would include the will, the decision-making capacity in a human being. The heart is the center of our lives. What people would say, the heart is our core. The heart is where, when you become a Christian, that's where you believe. 
You have to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. The Scriptures speak of the heart being so important that your heart often needs to be refreshed and to be renewed. Your heart needs also to be guarded so that it doesn't get led into sin. Your heart needs to be protected. You, you're told, don't let your heart get hard. Don't let your heart be hardened. We're told that we're to be tender-hearted towards others and love one another from the heart. So this refers to their heart and the soul being of one mind. This refers to a true unity, a strong unity, one of mind, one of soul, one of will. You might say one of purpose. It was not one of those superficial unities, those temporary unities that comes about. It's feeling-oriented. Everyone's really excited about the moment. You see the fans rooting for a sports team. You see people at a, a rock concert, and everybody is one for the moment, and then it just dissolves into bickering after that, right? Believers here have something that lasts better. They centered their thinking on Jesus Christ. They were dedicated to Him, and they were dedicated to the cause of Christ and to apostolic teaching. That was their center. That was their unity. Now, come on, they could have a lot of things that would divide them, but here was their center. You know that if you read Scripture, you will see that Scripture puts a premium on godly scriptural unity in a local church. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27 says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Ephesians 4, 4, it says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. In Colossians 3.15, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's plural. It's not talking about the individual heart with peace inside of you. It means peace in the congregation. Obviously, those who work to divide churches, to break up churches, to cause disharmony in churches, whose words rip at the trust of that people have towards one another, they're opposing the very thing the Holy Spirit is trying to accomplish in a local congregation. There are too many people in church that don't guard their words. They don't realize that their words can spread and their words can hurt. Even leaders, they harbor different agendas. They're in a local church and on the outside, they look like they're there with everybody else. But on the inside, in their meditations, they're not of one heart. And over time, that comes out and it becomes evident and God exposes that. And it can be very hurtful to a local church as we know. Too many people are like that. Too many people have their own agendas. They come to church with their own thoughts in mind. They want their church, the church to conform to those thoughts. And their center is not Christ and Christ's agenda. And those who don't take the unity of the local church seriously oppose the work of God in a local congregation and hurt it. And Satan loves that. Satan loves to find someone who's disgruntled and to be able to fan that flame and encourage that and encourage the divisions that result from that. Disgruntled people are there all the time. Has somebody hurt you? Has somebody neglected you? Has somebody not fulfilled the promise that they gave to you? Has some leader not proven to be all that they should be to you? Well, it's the same with all of us, right? We're all sinners. That's going to happen all the time. Did you not get your way? That happens to me also. We have to live with one another when that happens. We can't let Satan take advantage of that. Unity is a wonderful attribute for a local church. When that unity is centered not on lesser things, we can never agree on everything, right? How are we going to agree on everything? 
You think about the backgrounds that you have. How are we going to agree on all of the lesser things? God doesn't ask us to agree on all those lesser things. There is variety for a reason. We're allowed to have different opinions on a lot of things. But what are we doing here, and what are we trying to accomplish, and what is the center of this church that we're not allowed to disagree on? That is given to us in Scripture, and that has to be the core and heart of any local church, or it will fragment over time. A church focused on Christ can achieve one heart, one mind, one soul. Yes? Believe that. It can happen. But you have to put away lesser agendas and make Christ's agenda your agenda. That's the only way it can happen. And I believe, to a large degree, that's what we have here at Hope Bible Church. I think we've witnessed that over the last several months. I think we've witnessed a true work of the Holy Spirit. And many of you have commented on that to me, but you wouldn't need to. I can sense it. I can see it. I hear it. And I'm very, very blessed to be a part of that. I would just urge you, understand that the unity of a church undergirds all of the other important things that need to happen. If we get to a list and we say, we want these other things to be in our local church, like, like evangelism or, you know, like we want our worship to be better, disunity will, will tear at all of those other goals. If we don't have unity, we won't achieve the other goals. And so that's why this one is mentioned first and it's put prominently here. Watch out and help us preserve the unity of the Spirit in this church. Second attribute, and that is that this church loved each other. Now, we're going to skip a little bit with this one. It's sort of the last part of verse 32, and then if you go to the last part of verse 33, really the bulk of this little section, all the way to the end of 35, you have this incredible description of tangible love. The last part of verse 32 says, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him, was his own. But all things were common property to them. And then skip down to verse 34. For, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them, that really would be, and were selling them, and were bringing the proceeds of the sales. And verse 35, and were laying them at the apostles' feet. It was an ongoing action. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. I want to ask you, why is love such an important attribute for any local church to have? Because it shows that the people that are being taught in that church understand the message that they've been taught. They understand the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. In John 15, 12, Jesus said, this is my commandment. Isn't that interesting? He personalized and said, this is my commandment, and it's only one. And he was talking to his disciples. He said, this is my commandment that you what? Love one another. If there was something that was personally important to Jesus Christ for his followers, it was this. He said, I'm owning this commandment. This one's mine, that you love one another. So one thing he wanted absolutely done inside the church, love one another. God loves us. He does. He's committed to us. He's faithful to us. He cares about us. He sacrificed for us. God loves your soul. That's true. God forgives you in Christ. Outside of Christ, there's no forgiveness. In Christ, there's all forgiveness. Christ sacrificed for us on the cross. He demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. And then he did that first, and then he says, you go and love one another. He's not a hypocrite. He loved the greatest love. He has the right to tell us 
love one another. If we don't love each other, it shows we don't understand Christ very much. We don't understand what the cross of Christ was there to teach us. We don't. What is the point in having sound doctrine and all the classes and studies we have if we don't live it? 1 Peter 1.22, since you have in obedience to the truth purify your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Someone who says they love you and then runs when you're in need does not love you. It's not sincere. It was words. It wasn't real. And over time, false love gets exposed. 1 John 4.21, this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. In fact, it goes on to say the one who says he loves God but doesn't love his brother doesn't love either. You can't say that you love God whom you haven't seen when you're not loving your brother whom you have seen. That's John's theology. Well, here we have a stunning snapshot of love in a church. You ever visit another church and you might say, they were so loving, you can't possibly know they were so loving from visiting a church. How would you know that? You can say they were friendly. Guys, the cults are friendly. Why do you think people are dying to belong somewhere, right? Oh, such a friendly church. Okay, that's nice. I don't want to be an unfriendly church. But how do you know they're loving? By what they do, yes? I don't know how many of them had mushy good feelings towards one another in this church. I imagine it was pretty good in that regard. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say they were all holding hands and singing kumbaya. It gives us a description of what they were doing. This is like 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. This is true love in action. We have a phenomenal spirit-born manifestation of agape love right here. No one claimed any of his belongings were his own. That's astounding. Think about that. No one claimed any of their belongings were their own. What kind of a local church is like that? I've never been in a local church like that. All the struggles we have with materialism in the American church, this is a slap to the right cheek and a slap to the right cheek, left cheek. Goodness gracious. I think we can safely say this church here was not a materialistic church. It was a church who loved each other more than they coveted belongings for themselves. And with the belongings comes status, landowner, right? This was a demonstration of uncommon generosity, born of true love, taught by the Spirit of Christ. Only the Spirit of Christ can produce this. The new president of the Southern Baptist Convention said in an interview by the Gospel Coalition online recently, our preaching of the gospel must be accompanied by acts of extravagant gospel generosity, end quote. With that, I think the Scriptures agree. We are to be generous with each other. All things were common property to them. That term common is the word koinos. It's a cognate of a more familiar Greek term you've heard of, koinonia. Koinonia is the word from which we get fellowship, right? We have fellowship with one another, koinonia. 
Most of you know I enjoy a good donut, but fellowship is more than donuts and coffee, right? Sharing a donut is a wonderful thing. I'm not knocking that. Sharing coffee with one another, that's great. But the fellowship involves much more than that. In fact, as you read the New Testament and study what koinonia is, it's the sharing in the whole common life. Everything from the witnessing to the worshiping to the giving of material needs to each other. That is the common life. This church understood that, that their fellowship meant they're not really an island to themselves. They're connected to others. I'm sure they're selling the properties and monies that would go to the apostles' feet and then be distributed were for the needs of those who were needy. It would be food. It would be clothing. It would be shelter. It would be more basic things that they needed. In fact, the wealthier members of the congregation, these landowners, these homeowners, are said to be performing three actions. They were selling their properties, and I'm I'm wording it that way so you understand what was happening, and they were were then bringing those liquid funds, so to say, and then laying them at the apostles' feet. Why the apostles? The apostles were the elders of this first church. Yes, they are the foundation of the universal church. They were laid at the beginning of the church. There are no apostles in the church now. They're all foundational to the church. But they also, at this stage, were the elders of this local church. And so the money was brought and was laid right at their feet, wherever they were, wherever they were in front of the room, leading the room, it was laid there as an act of worship, not of the apostles. They represented Christ. It was an act of worship to Jesus Christ. And they trusted the apostles to distribute the funds as would be needed. Now, when we actually get to chapter 6, we're going to see that the apostles really didn't like doing this distribution of the funds. They didn't really think this was the wisest use of their time. This was not what Jesus had called them to do. They wanted to dedicate their time to what they were called to do, the ministry of the Word and the ministry of intercessory prayers on behalf of the saints. And so because of that, and because they weren't doing as great a job as they needed to, because the church got so large and some were being overlooked, the office of the deacon was born in that local church, and all of a sudden we see that the great care of the congregation was, was improved because uh, there were now deacons in the church as well. How important our deacons are to our local church. Deacons were also vital to the early church. They made sure no one was overlooked. None of the poor were overlooked. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in a church and having real needs and you're overlooked? It's not like someone said, you know, we hate that guy. Don't give that guy any money. It's just they were overlooked. And when they're overlooked, bitterness can come in there. And you're like, I thought this church was supposed to be loving towards one another. That has happened in this church. People have been overlooked before, and that's not good. That shouldn't happen. So you pray for your deacons and pray for the importance of their ministry that they do here, and not just in caring for the poor, but other things as well. And notice the standard that they set in this church, verse 34, no needy person was among them. I think that sounds like there wasn't one. I mean, everyone was being cared for. Anybody who had a need could express their need. There was some way of communicating that need, and then it was cared for. There's a lot of communication that's going properly there as well. In fact, this standard, no needy person among them, was what the Lord had promised the nation of Israel when they were entering into the land. He uh, promised in Deuteronomy 15.4, there will be no poor among you, those were the Israelites, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. So everyone was to be cared for. That's what God wanted in the nation. And then everyone is to be cared for in the church. Here, this community cared for every last person. 
This was a strong, vibrant Christian community. How do we know that? Because they didn't just give towards one another. It extended out to every last person, the new person that came in that was shy and, and, and maybe didn't even want to express what their needs were. Somehow people found out about that and made sure that person was cared for. There were people that were alert to this. There were people that were looking for this. How are you doing, brother? Well, not so well. Let's meet those needs. Let's see what we can do. That's exciting. It's hard to believe that there was a church this good, isn't it? Wow. Our hope book that we have online where all of a sudden you have something in your house you don't want anymore. Our family does the same thing and you put it online, it gets swallowed up pretty quickly, doesn't it? That's a start, but that's nowhere near what we're reading about here, right? This was giving away huge things so that others could have basic needs being met. We have our care packages for the college students. I think that's a wonderful expression of love for them. We also have the Benevolence Fund, as Brandon already talked about. That's for the material needs of people in the congregation. It's to help out with legitimate needs, not where people are making foolish decisions and they just want to spend someone else's money. But there's so much materialism built into us as Americans. I I think that a text like this just shakes us a little bit and helps us realize how much we're oriented around getting things and ensuring things and keeping things and polishing things for ourselves. We get bigger things that we need and we have no extra money to give to someone else and what we do have is a lot of stress trying to take care of it. That's just not the right balance. This is a challenge to us. Look at our priorities. How well are we thinking of others? However, I have to say also, lest the Bible be twisted to conform to the politics of the day, it needs to be said, because some people have misused this text, that this was not Christian communism. This was not socialism, as some people come to this text and say, see, the Bible teaches socialism. No, it does not. It should be quite clear to everyone that reads this that these belongings were not owned by the government. This was not socialism. They were owned by the brethren in the church. In other words, this commonality was driven by devotion to religion, not by law from the state government. In fact, there wasn't even a law given by the church. The apostles, who were the leaders of this church, the elders of this church, did not require the people to sell their properties. The giving was entirely what? Voluntary, right? And that is what made it so special, brothers. It was love. It was the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You cannot mandate love. People love to misuse the Bible to support their causes. Further proof, though, that this was not socialism is, again, what I mentioned, that 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 Greek tense of each of the actions is in the imperfect tense, and that means it shows a continuous action. In other words, periodically things were being sold and were being brought and were being laid at the feet of the apostles, and then they would take that as the needs would arrive and they would distribute the funds. That tense in Greek helps us to understand that they didn't just all sell their property as soon as they joined a commune and then didn't own anything at all. That's not what was happening. It was they had the attitude that this that I actually do own doesn't just belong to me. It belongs to the Lord to be able to use in the community, and I'm ready to sell it. And when it was needed, they did sell it, and they did bring the funds, and they did give it all away. This was ongoing, ongoing selling, ongoing presenting. In fact, later it's quite clear that some of the people in this Jerusalem church still own their homes. 
For example, Mary in Acts chapter 12, where they were meeting for a prayer meeting. In fact, Mary even had a servant girl named Rhoda. Further, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 4, if you just look a few verses ahead, Peter told Ananias, this is the bad Ananias, that all of the giving that the church was doing was voluntary. It was never required. They had no reason, Ananias and Sapphira, to lie to the Holy Spirit about the price of the land that they sold. In fact, if you look at Barnabas in verse 36, he is presented as an example of his giving because it was voluntary. How could Barnabas be commended for his example of giving if everybody in the whole place was required to give? Remember, I told you that when we study the book of Acts, we're studying an historical book. It's an inspired book, but it's an historical book. That means that not everything in it is meant to be copied exactly as it happened. There were other churches in the New Testament, and we never read of any of the other churches having done quite what this church did. It's presented as something the Holy Spirit produced, something where God gets the glory for it, a lovely expression of love, something to learn from, something to copy as we can in our own environment and as the needs are. But it is not mandated even for us. I think also we should add here, lest someone also use the Scripture wrongly, that the rest of the Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, teaches that people do have an individual responsibility to work hard and to provide for their own families. In fact, to the Thessalonian church, the Apostle Paul had to say, if a man is not willing to work, neither let him what? Eat. (laughs) He wants to eat, don't let him. In other words, let him learn from the hunger pangs that he's not working, and that's why he's not eating. These here were real needs, real needs that were being met, food, clothing, shelter, things like this. Many of the so-called needs that people talk about in our day are not needs at all. They're things they just wish that they had. Other people have them, and so they want to have them, and they feel it's their right to have them because other people have them. But that's, that's not what the church is here to do, to raise everyone's standard of living or to make everyone's standard of living the same. That's not what this is either. Sometimes we just have to learn to do without things. But where the need is legitimate, we should be there for one another. Would you agree? We are a family. And we can do a better job of that. We can do a better job of caring for believers. We can do a better job of caring for believers, even if we don't have great needs in this congregation, to find other congregations with greater needs. Maybe they're in another part of this country. Maybe they're in another part of the world. We could do more in meeting their needs. But you know what we need in order to accomplish that? We need some of you to be touched in your heart to realize that things like that don't get done unless someone rises up and organizes it. Uh, Leaders of our church already are doing an awful lot. And if you want to see something else, if you want to see the church extending its ministry and caring for more people, then maybe you're the one that the Lord would tap on the shoulder and you would help to organize that and make that a reality. Either way, we pray the Lord's love will abound at Hope Bible Church. Amen? Thirdly, they were focused on the mission of the church. They were focused on the mission of the church. This is in verse 33, going back up. It says, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Giving testimony, in case you missed it, means evangelism. The apostles were evangelizing. You may remember they are the literal eye and ear witnesses of Jesus being raised from the dead, So only the apostles really could give the church's primary testimony. 
We talk about we go out and witness and all of that, but we don't give a primary witness. We didn't see Jesus raised from the dead. They did. And so all of our witness is built on their witness. When we are witnessing, really we're passing on their testimony to the world. We're bringing them back to the written testimony of the apostles, which is the New Testament, and we're telling people, read this. They were there and believe when you read. I've said this before, but you will find that the early church was not focused on lesser projects and goals. There's a lot of talk in the greater Christian community about what is the purpose of the church. It should not be in doubt what the purpose of the church is. It was given from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, and His words are not to be twisted. It's very clear what the church is supposed to do. I don't know why the church is having an identity crisis in our, in our uh, century. The Lord made it very clear. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always into the end of the age. What is so unclear about that? The mission of the church is spreading the gospel. The mission of the church is making disciples. The mission of the church is starting other churches. That's it. That's the mission of the church. Everything else is spillover benefit. When you go into your workplace and you're a kind person, that's spillover benefit. When you work in the business world and you bring integrity there, that's spillover benefit. The church was not placed here to stamp out world hunger or to get rid of all the social ills in society. Trust me, as bad as you think America is, Rome was worse, ten times worse. Be thankful for where you live. It gets worse in other places and other times. But the church was not there to stamp out all the ills of Greco-Roman society. They were there to do what would please God. If you take somebody and they externally obey some moral command of God, but they don't have faith in Jesus Christ, they don't please God and you haven't made the world a better place. You wasted your time and your energy. Here, what are the apostles doing? Giving testimony to Jesus and His resurrection. That's why we exist here in this community. That's what we collectively are to get behind and see accomplished. It's not rocket science. Now, this does not mean that only the apostles were giving testimony. In case you wanted to cop out, say, oh, see, the apostles were evangelizing. I don't have to do that. Elsewhere, we read that everyone went about sharing the good news. But it does show that the church's evangelism was centered on the apostles. And God testified to them in a unique way by providing powerful miracles to back up their testimony. They were the official witnesses of Christ, and Christ made sure everybody knew that by having them perform miracles and having the miracles happen around them and on those that they directly laid their hands. In 2 Corinthians 12, in our Scripture reading, Paul mentioned to the Corinthians, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. You know I'm a true apostle. I proved it by the miracles that I do. Now, if every Joe Christian did miracles, how could that prove only the apostles were the apostles? Because the miracles were to testify to them. So you know immediately when someone says, well, miracles are around them, that's not true, unless They happen to be 2,000 years old walking around and they can claim they saw Jesus Christ in the first century, which I don't think that's going to work. The early church was not a miracle-working church. Let me say that again. The early church was not a miracle-working church. 
They were a church that had miracle-working apostles, and God testified to them and to their servants who were around them, those brothers that served along with them to those miracles. Apostolic testimony is the foundation of the church, and that apostolic testimony centered around the resurrection of Jesus. I said it before, I'm going to say it again. Any presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that leaves out the fact that he was raised from the dead or that makes that sort of a, oh yeah, by the way, he was raised from the dead, that's not a very good gospel presentation. These apostles put that message front and center. You hear more about the resurrection than you hear about any other point in your gospel outline. You got four points to your outline, six points to your outline. The number one point is, guess what? Jesus was raised from the dead. The whole entire church is built on that doctrine, the bodily, physical, historical resurrection from the dead. Why do you think we celebrate Easter and it's so important to us, right? If there's no resurrection of Jesus, there's no church. What makes Christianity so different from everyone else? Um, Our leader was raised from the dead. Yours wasn't, and you know that, and that's why Satan works overtime with all these ridiculous arguments to try to say, well, he wasn't raised from the dead. Well, why wasn't he raised from the dead? Because, because people just don't rise from the dead. Yes, that's the point. People don't just rise from the dead, but Jesus did. I'm totally with you until you get to the part that Jesus didn't. You can't say, well, because Mary and John and Joe, they were not raised from the dead, that Jesus, therefore, can't be raised from the dead. That's not logical. There are all these eyewitnesses that said he was, and they touched him, and they saw him over 40 days. That's pretty good evidence. Well, the Bible was changed. No, it wasn't. We have the manuscripts. You don't need to be a believer to know that. That's the testimony of the early church. You can't escape that testimony. It happened. And Peter was so pumped about that. I mean, he had all those Jewish leaders staring him down and saying, you may not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. It wasn't a very good accent, but you know what? It was trying to, I was trying to get that moment there, you know. Stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And Peter, without batting an eye, said, whether it's right in the sight of God to obey you or not, you be the judge, but we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. There's no way you're going to shut Peter and John up. It wasn't going to happen. Beloved, this church not only loved their own, they loved the lost around them as well. Do you see that? I want you to see why it's a vibrant church. It's a vibrant church because it didn't act like a club. What's a club? Everybody comes because they have the things they like. They get together, and these are the few things we do, and we like that, and we get together, and we watch football, or we play chess, or what else do you do? I don't know. We sew. This church was not, this is about us, us four and no more. Yes, they cared for one another, but that shows that they were getting out of themselves caring for the other person, you see. Some of us are are, are bored in life and we don't have joy in life. Why? Because we're not loving. You're going through a time and you come to church and you're like, "Ah, I don't really get a lot out of it. Right, I agree, you don't get a lot out of it. You don't put anything into it. You know Usually you have to put something in, a quarter in, before you get something out. You can put love in, you'll get joy back. You'll get peace back. It'll be there. A vibrant, loving Christian community is focused on giving to others 
and also the mission outside of the church. It's not me. What is the church going to do for me? Well, they don't have this for me. I don't like how they did this for me. Well, I don't like some things either. Get over yourself. Quit making these lesser issues about you. Why? Why is it about you? I didn't know the whole church exists just for you. It doesn't exist for me. I, I stand up here and talk, but trust me, most of my time is not standing up here and talking. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the mission. It's about Christ. When we die, we're going to fall at whose feet in heaven? It's pretty simple, right? We're going to go fall at Jesus' feet. You know, if we fall at the foot of an angel, what's the angel going to say? Get up. This is wrong. I'm a servant like you. The angels in heaven fall at the feet of Christ. He's magnificent. He's glorious. He's worthy of all worship. I hope we can be like Peter and say, we can't stop speaking about it. Yeah, but pastor, people are not listening. I know. Nobody listens to me either. <laughs> Start to, yeah, I'm a pastor and they're already turning their ears off. I keep saying, Lord, help give us someone who will listen, right? Some of you are electronic. Get on there and find someone that will listen and outreach them. Well, I'm running out of time. Don't forget the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in your gospel presentations. Make that front and center. That is what it is all about. Lastly, fourth, this was a church that displayed divine favor. This is a little harder to grasp. I'll just say it briefly. Look back up there at the end of verse 33. It says, an abundant grace was upon them all. In fact, that statement leads into how they were able to give towards one another. They were giving and giving and giving because abundant grace was upon them all. Do you see that? Now, abundant grace, we all get saved because we've tasted grace. Would you agree? We call it in theology saving grace. We're saved because God gives us favor that we don't deserve. That's the gospel, right? We don't earn salvation. It's of God's grace. Yes? You're with me? It's not of works. It's of grace, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, right? But there's, the grace of God doesn't end the moment we were saved. Okay, you got the grace of God. I guess that's it. Now it's all up to you. No. We continue to rely on the grace of God. Paul said as an apostle, when he was weak, then he was strong. His grace was sufficient for him. So there is this thing called sanctifying grace, or some call it sustaining grace. That's what this church was experiencing. Abundantly, it was upon them. They had opened themselves up and been obedient and yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit. And so that abundant grace of Christ was able to work into the fabric of their community and was able to spill over into that love and into that boldness and evangelism and into that single-hearted focus on doing the will of God. It was a church that was relying on the grace of God. And because they were relying, the other attribute they had is they were displaying not their skills. They were displaying not their, their intelligence and the machinery of their own work. They were displaying the grace of God. They were a testimony that God was at work in their community. And others could look at it and they couldn't deny it. There is something there we don't see anywhere else. I know the world has its imitations, 
and in some ways they're gatherings in groups in the world or in other religions and they look for a while like they look the same as a church congregation. That's only to those who look at it superficially. When someone takes time to look at what is actually happening in a work of God, they see that can't be done anywhere else. Those people couldn't do that. Those people don't have that kind of love. Those people can't overcome their ethnic diversity and their socioeconomic differences and their political differences. Those people can't do that. Those people cannot usually get along. Those people can't have that kind of joy and that kind of peace and that kind of love. Those people can't do that, but God must be able to do it because it's there. The source has to come from somewhere, and it doesn't arise from the earth. It doesn't arise from our our birth in this world. It arises from the birth from above. Amen? And so they demonstrated the abundant grace of all. In Acts 11, it says, when Paul arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. I think actually that was Peter. In Acts 20, in verse 32, Paul said, I now commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In Romans 6.14, believers are told, sin will not be your master anymore, for you are not under God's law, you're under what? Grace. Grace is a power that you are under. It's your master. In 1 Corinthians 1 For it says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, Paul wrote, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. The grace of God is available. The grace of God is a power. When we are weak, then He is strong in us. He gets the glory. And we get to display not our own prowess, not our own intelligence, not our own ministry skill. We get to be demonstrators of the undeserved favor of God upon a congregation. And we get to keep saying, it's not us. We don't deserve this. It's God. He gets all the glory and praise to him. May God have his grace abound to this congregation that we may be of one heart, that we may love one another tangibly, that we may be committed to the purpose of the church, the making of disciples in all nations, then he gets the glory. Father, be glorified in our midst. Teach your people from the leaders on down. Forgive us when we sin, Lord, when we have anger and jealousy, when we are divided from one another for petty reasons. Lord, when we can't get along because of personality differences. Father, forgive us when we lust for things we do not have, when we have the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. Forgive us, Father, because we need your abundant grace. Even now, as we continue to serve you, in the name of your Son, we pray, amen.